Welcome to CFO Insights. I'm Guy Hutchinson, one of the Startup CFO Group founders and the host of this podcast. In this episode, we'll be meeting David Rose. David is a serial entrepreneur and founder of US Expansion Partners. His latest venture supports European technology companies with all aspects of launching and scaling operations in the US. Essentially, they take care of all the grimy details, allowing the CFO to remain focused on the activities of the greatest value add. David has a proven track record of building successful businesses, and as we'll discover, one of the themes that runs through David's career is building data-centric products with amazing usability. I doubt there's a better background for anyone supporting tech CFOs. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Guy. I appreciate you having me on the CFO Insights podcast. That's okay. So look, um, we, we met up a few days ago. You're in the UK for about a week. Uh, 10 days. 10 days, yep. wow. Uh, and we got chatting about your exciting new business. Uh, but actually, we should start off with your background, right? You've got a really varied career. You've done lots of interesting things. Um, so why don't you run down? So academically, I have an undergrad degree in economics and an MBA from UNC Chapel Hill. My first job out of undergrad was a great experience. I worked for a Fortune 500 company called Automatic Data Processing, or ADP. Mm-hmm. They do HR tech. Um, got to do seven jobs there in seven years, so it was a good place to start. And God, I don't know if it was the best thing or worst thing that ever happened to me, but I got to do a startup inside of ADP. So my first startup was inside a Fortune 500 company. So you did a corporate startup. Did a corporate startup. Yeah. And so um, it was a great experience. We grew to $150 million in less than two years. We bought a $400 million publicly traded company. And it's a $5 billion line of business now for ADP called Total Source. It's their PEO business. That's big. So we got to do all the fun startup stuff without having to worry about raising capital and making payroll. Yeah, yeah. So, so those corporate ventures come with different challenges. Though you still have some of the politics of being a corporate, right? You do, yeah. you do. And, and if you're super successful, you you've re- you started a multi-billion-dollar company without any equity outside. Uh, that's the that's, right. that's a big downside. That's, that's yes. the flip side of that. So, but, so, but a great place to start. Yeah, and good experience yeah. from the start. And um, we were kind of the first really scale of the PEO business. So essentially, a frontier tech space and. Um, since then, I've done five venture-backed startups. I'm a three-time CEO, and, I, and I've done a lot of first-to-market, first frontier tech, first-entry experiences, which mm. are super painful but super interesting to, to launch. Fascinating, David. So, so one, one thing that's interesting to explore, frontier tech. It's not a term that we use here much in the UK. So how, how would you define frontier tech? So frontier tech would be something, if you're, if you're an ADP, you know, you're going you're gonna to be in the HR business, which is well understood, right? And so you may be in frontier tech, which is a kind of first in. So probably some good frontier tech now would be around you know blockchain or quantum or it's kind of the first to market. So yeah. some, some concepts are interesting, but you're the first person or one of the first companies to try and commercialize it and you know build revenue from customers off of it. Yeah, incredible. Fantastic. And and which of those businesses is the one that you felt was the most exciting, the one where you felt you made the biggest development in terms of your career? Wow. So I've, I've served, uh, you know, I started out in sales and, you know, when I got into startups, um, you know, ended up in sales leadership um, and, you know, so the vice president of sales and marketing, uh, COO, and then ultimately CEO. Um, you know, they're all, they're all learnings um, in frontier tech. A lot of them are painful. You know, you're mm-hmm. trying to get a product to market. You're not sure. Do you have product market fit? How do we price it? Um, how do we, how much cash runway do we need? Can we get cash and fundraising? So, um, you know, they're, they're all, they're all cumulative in, in the learnings. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my my first startup where I came from Fortune 500 to a startup with you know literally less than 50 people, um, that was a, a big learning because you didn't have a support staff around you. You just kind of had to 
you know, you're on your own largely as a, as a contributor yeah. until they kind of figure it out. So I think that was a important learning because that's kind of been the, the model ever since is when your starts, even as they scale, you typically are, are much more, um, much more on your own and you have less support. You just have to be the person to do it. Yeah. And that's one of the experiences that lots of our members find. So a lot of our members at Startup CFO, they're probably the first finance hire. So they'll be head of finance or FD and they'll be the only person in finance rolling up their sleeves and trying to solve all kinds of things. And actually your, your new venture would be supporting them on things like that because it's all about U.S. market entry. Yeah, for sure. So the, the background on the, on the current on U.S. expansion partners, about this time last year, I moved from CEO to chairman of a, of a company um, I've been the CEO for for the last couple of years. And a company from Germany contacted me and said, hey, we'd like to talk to you about being our U.S. CEO. We want to launch in the U.S. And I knew their tech space really well. Super impressed with the product. Um, like the team a lot, we had a couple of calls. And so I uh, flew to Germany and spent a week with them. And I learned two things very quickly. Number one is they don't need a CEO. They already mm -hmm. have a CEO. What they're really looking for is someone to hire two salespeople in the U.S. and launch and call that a CEO role. But it's really nothing functionally about a CEO. The second thing I learned is, and they're super smart, they've got, they've raised $12 million venture. Uh, I probably shouldn't say their ARR numbers. They're doing really well. They doubled their ARR this year. Yeah, great. Um, but all the things it takes to launch a U.S. entity are just one giant black scary box to them. Mm. And the chairman of the board actually said to me, he said, look, we're just nervous because there's a long history of European venture-backed tech companies going to the U.S. and getting fleeced. They don't know what people cost. They don't know what um, services cost, what rent space costs, and they pay too much. And so having someone to help us with all that helps us feel better about coming. And so this is just one of those things you kind of fall into in the startup world. But, you know, this particular company needs some help. I said, look, I don't want to be your you know, CEO for the U.S., but I know how to start a business. I like you. Why don't I just help you do that? And that was kind of the genesis. Yeah, fantastic. So you'll take that black box and uh, make it a thing that uh, CFOs back at Basecamp can really understand and can access all of the components that they need to be kind of present locally to hire teams to be compliant. Yeah, for sure. And so you know, if you have entity formation where you have, to form a, you have to form a board and you have to have bylaws and those kind of compliance related things, and then you have certain insurances in the US which are very different from insurances, particularly in the home company mm -hmm. or country. And then you know, the human resources and the, the laws for how you hire people and, and how you terminate people are all very, very different. And so kind of scary, our, our goal would be if you're, if you're having a startup company, I think it'd be ideal to find a founder who has unique market insights or has a unique product idea and pair them with a, essentially a COO who's done a few startups. I mean, that'd be the ideal scenario when you're starting yeah. a business. So our thought would be, we're kind of be that entity for when you come to the US, we'll be that COO who will stand beside the, the entity and help you um, help you build the business. You know, and whether that be you know, from a you know, transfer pricing and accounting and insurance and kind of compliance or, or go to market or, um, raising capital, those kind of things, trying to help the business be successful in the U.S. Uh, as broadly as, as we can. Yeah, fantastic. So it's almost like U.S. Expansion Partners is a virtual COO service, right? The U.S.-centric piece around it. Uh, and one of the things that I think be interesting to try and explore is that we we know from the conversations that we see in our Slack group, there's a lot of conversations about trying to unravel things like US insurance and US hiring policies, USHR law, because if we can support each other peer-to-peer, -peer, that, that that's great. But probably we don't have too much expertise on these types of topics. But the one thing that's occurred to me from having seen so many conversations is that a lot of the risks in the hiring, 
right? Not, not because of um, employment rights that are actually relatively modest in the US versus what we see in Europe, uh, but because of the risk that you don't get the right people. So how do you help uh, a UK or EU business to sort of source the right candidates for those first hires? Yeah, so that's a really important thing. I think, I think a mistake we see commonly is when a company comes to the US, um, they want to have a US, a US executive, right? And so they might go to a, a really great tech brand in the US, so Stripe or Figma or even Microsoft, and hire a, you know accomplished exec to, to launch that business. Part of the challenges are, I mean, you're essentially a startup when you come to the US, and that executive who's had a great successful career um, at Microsoft, for, for example, may have never started a business in the US before, right? And they might mm. not understand the details of how workers' compensation works or how general liability or Arizona mission insurance, because it's always been done at the parent company. And so those hires are oftentimes very, very expensive senior hires. They may not really know how to start a business. And frankly, they might not be able to operate in a small business without a broad support network around them. And so uh, one, of, one of the ways we de-risk you know, U.S. expansion is we can serve as your interim executive and hire, you know, whether it be technical uh, expertise or sales or marketing, and then give you time to find that right executive hire over time without that pressure of having to do that up front. Um, and it costs a lot of money, um, a lot of risk, and so we kind of de-risk that situation, let you grow, let you expand, and then over time we can help find that right person. Mm. So you find that people with this early stage experience where they had to build something from scratch, you you find that person is more likely to do well in this type of situation than somebody who was in a leadership role in a Microsoft or a Facebook or something like this. Right, because they're, they're more used to you know be, being responsible for themselves and they understand what's what's you know what's what happens in their early stage startup. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people who've had a great career in a, in a bigger tech brand just don't understand early stage at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting, and I imagine a lot of CFOs are struggling with like early versions of the budget. So a lot of UK EU businesses, they're going to do a big-ish US launch on the back of a fundraise. Mm -hmm. They'll allocate a big chunk of what they raise and like that, that'll be for the US because the market is worth so much. So how do you help people to figure out what a realistic budget looks like? Because that connects with understanding if the product really achieves a product market fit in the market as well. Right. So you know, we, we typically run a separate pro forma just for the US, mm -hmm. right? And you see kind of put all your assumptions in there, whether it be on expense or revenue or margins, all those type of things. And so I, I like having a, a really workable pro forma model that becomes essentially the business plan, right? I think a lot of people have PowerPoints. I like I like a very detailed pro forma as a business plan because all the details are in there by hire by month, revenue by month, all this sort of thing. So I think that's a really important tool. And, and as you close each month, you can kind of go back to the pro forma and see how are we doing against our assumptions? Right. And yeah. I think that's a good way to kind of, you know, have actual actionable information. Just kind of once you close, let's go back and look. Our assumptions are on revenue or expenses, how they stack up against what we thought was going to happen. Yeah. Very interesting. And to what degree do you help companies with location? Because I think a lot of certainly a lot of UK businesses doing well. They tend to start in New York, mm -hmm. uh, partly because the time difference is smaller. Um, but but the valley also has appeal. You know, a lot of the sexy stories about you know VC backed businesses doing incredibly well. Those are valley stories, yeah. uh, and so we, we do see people go into the valley. So, how do you guide some of your clients towards uh, ideal locations? It kind of depends on the business you're in. Are you uh, are you a B two B business? Are you a product led growth business? So it kind of depends on who your customers are and who your partners are. Um, I think one one aspect of trying to decide what the right location is uh, as you come to the U S. 
it's often overlooked um, is, is, is geography and time zones. So if you are on the East Coast of the US, having a broad overlap of hours with the parent company is much more important than people realize because as customers have questions, you have to get you know, an answer from the home office. Mm. If you're on the East Coast, you can, get a, you can get a reply that same day. If you're on the West Coast, which is again, three hours difference, it could be a 24 hour turn on any kind of question. So I think there's obviously things about you know location around uh, access to customers and partners. Yeah. But I think two of the overlooked ones are gonna be the overlap in hours. And then in the U.S., there's a federal income tax for corporations at 28%, but there's also a state income tax for corporations that most people aren't aware of. Mm. Um, there's, I was talking with a company uh, who reached out and said, hey, we're, we're just going to create a U.S. entity. Uh, we're not going to rent to hire employees, but we want to run our U.S. business through this U.S. entity, and we're just going to do it in New York because our CEO has an apartment there. And I said, well, it's, it's important to understand the difference in corporate income tax. Right? If you're not going to have employees... In New York, for example, I believe it's eight and a half percent is the corporate income tax. Uh, in North Carolina, uh, it's two and a half percent. Right, so you can say six points of margin. Big difference. If you're not going to have employees, and, and it doesn't matter. I mean, just making decisions like that or understanding the implications of the, the location um, make a big difference. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so, if you recommend alternative locations on the East Coast uh, for people that, that don't need to be in New York, for example, like like you know, where's What's the top two, three locations that they ought to consider? Well, I'm biased, so I'm, I'm based in the, the Research Triangle Park, North Carolina area, which I, I think is a, is a great area. But you kind of you kind of go from you know Miami is a, is a hot tech scene you know, on the East okay, Coast. Um, Atlanta has a really burgeoning tech scene, and a lot of great enterprise customers. Charlotte, North Carolina has a great fintech. Most people don't realize that Bank of America, for example, and Wells Fargo are headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, as you as you go further up, you have the Research Triangle Park area where I'm based. Um, there's, you know, there's a Virginia tech scene, you know, in, in Virginia, and of course, New York and Boston. So there's, there's all kinds of options on the East Coast. Yeah. And, and probably not huge differences in the tax rates between those states. Or oh, oh yeah, there are. You know, so in general, if you go from the Northeast and you know, from the Boston, New York area further south, the, the tax rates decrease um, as you go further south. Mm. In so, general. so broadly, it depends on the sector you're in. So if you're in fintech, you might want to be in one of those areas where there's a nice heritage of fintechs, it's perhaps easier to hire people um, with with that type of background and, and, and then probably the tax rates having some impact as well. Yeah, and the, the yeah. German company, that my first company that I worked with, you know, we kind of went through their their wishes for partners. Who do we want to partner with in the US? Um, they had five and two of those two of those five were based in Research Triangle Park as it turns out. Okay. Right. So yeah. there's 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 kind of look at access to customers, access to partners. Access to capital, all, all those kind of things we, we want to have a kind of collective discussion around. Yeah, 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 I can see that. Good. So I was thinking, David, some of the people listening to us talking here, they'll be probably doing some of these things themselves already. They, they've probably done a US market launch already and they're bringing together all of these components. And, and what I guess what's good about that is that it requires the, the CFO or to some degree the CEO to learn about some of those nuances in the US and to you know, roll up their sleeves a bit and do some of this stuff the hard way. But they'll also be thinking, I wonder what the pitfalls are. So I'm intrigued, like for businesses that wouldn't have a turnkey solution a bit like yours, you know, what are the, the top things they should be aware of that, that, that could be major pitfalls? I think if you kind of look at the, the traditional route when, when companies come to the US, um, they're going to get past typically service providers, service providers. There's networks of those things. Mm. So you might be passed from you know, an accounting firm to an insurance agency to a law firm. I think part of the challenge is, is each one of those service providers, even if they are excellent at their field, most of them assume they know all the pieces and parts. 
Uh, but I would just, you know, speaking as a longtime operator, unless you've been a longtime operator, you don't know how those things fit together, right? And so part of the challenge is when you get advice from service providers as you come to the U.S. is they're going to they're gonna think they know the entire picture, but they might, m most likely will not. So I think having somebody who can help you understand, and one of the, one of the things that's different is if you're a venture-backed startup, as a CEO of a venture-backed startup, I always would think, Every decision I'm going to make, even if it's small, how will that affect my my ability to raise capital in the future, right? Yeah. And if you're talking to service providers, they're not, they don't think that way. They don't think about how this decision, whatever it may be, is how will it affect positively or negatively my ability to raise capital next time. And so that's one of those. That's one of those kind of. If you're once you start raising capital, you kind of have to commit to that that path and all those decisions you make and how does that relate to that next round? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, as you've mentioned, VCs, uh, we should talk about. So, so a lot of entrepreneurs in the UK that they, they probably reached decent scale, uh, maybe launched a new market in Europe, uh, and have raised money off two or three VCs, probably almost sold in the UK. Would think that the market for VC is not too different in the US. Um, is that a bit of a myth? Is it is is it a bit of a different game to? pitched to VCs in the States? Well, I haven't pitched in the UK, but what I can tell you is kind of based off what I've learned is there's just a, the sheer volume of venture capital firms in the US is, is overwhelming, right? right? And so I think the, a common mistake would be as you want to raise capital in the US is, oh, I read I read on TechCrunch about Andreessen Horowitz. They sound really nice. I'm going to go pitch them. Yeah. And I think the key, what I've learned is if you can target the right firms, that makes all the difference in the world when you go to raise because there's such a huge volume of just volume of firms. So if I'm a general partner at a, at a VC firm and I'm going to go raise capital from, uh, you know, high worth net individuals or university endowments or pension funds, I'm going to have an investment thesis. And my investment thesis may be I'm going to invest in the mobile business and I'm going to write million dollar checks, you know, at the, at the seed stage. That's my investment thesis. And so when they invest, they go raise money from those limited partners, they're kind of obligated to follow that investment thesis. So most most firms will have an investment thesis or subcategories of it. So the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make everywhere is they don't do that research. And they're gonna spend a lot of time and political capital and energy to try and meet, I wanna meet God, he sounds like, he sounds like somebody I can raise capital with. And I could be a, a e-commerce startup and you could be a clean tech VC who, who, who does growth and I'm at a seed stage. And so finding that match, just understanding where you are as a company and what your profile is and how that aligns with the, the funds you want to attach and target those funds, you're, it greatly increases your chances of success and speed to, to capital. Yeah. So, so, so you can use your experience and your data points about the different funds to help a prospective uh, entrepreneur to meet 20 or 30 of the right kind of people rather than pitch to someone who's, who's really famous, right. maybe just not investing in your category. Right, right. That, yeah. that's, that's the key to success, really. It's still hard. I mean, I think what a lot of people don't realize is, is that um, you know, even if you have a successful team with experience and exits and a great product, I mean, to raise a round of capital in the U.S., you, you should expect 100 no's before you get your first term sheet. And that's a little shocking to some people. Um, but you really, it's, it's, it, you have to, it's, it's like an enterprise sales. You have to get a hundred no's to get a yes. And, um, so being able to target, you know, spend your, your targeting the right firms really helps your chance of success. Because if you are targeting all the firms in the U S and there's thousands of them, that, that number goes past hundred very quickly. Do you have to go pitch? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's good lessons there about, uh, yeah. Making sure that you realize it's a marathon 
uh, and making the marathon less painful just by being really targeted about who you're spending time with. You should assume it's going to be six months, and you should assume it's going to be 100 nodes and plan your cash burn accordingly. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And some of, I, I think we touched on this slightly with the, the example of the German company earlier. Mm. I think sometimes UK founders are thinking that they're going to hire like a GM or a US CEO, so, someone who will be a true leader, and that that person would have sufficient credentials to uh, help to excite a US investor. Like, do you think that that that's true? That to get a really big hitter on the payroll early is making a big difference with those guys. You know, it's strange. So I think it, it would it could help with like industry connections. So if you hire someone out of a specific industry from your from your vertical, you know, that kind of helps open doors on the customer side. Um, if that if that executive were to have you know deep personal relationships with investors, I think that would help. But I think generally the the investors in the U.S. what they really want is a relationship with the CEO. Right, not yeah. not not the proxy in the U.S., and so I think that having that personal connection um, is really important. That 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 connection between that that rapport and confidence and and um, interaction between the, the the investor and the CEO is, is really critical, and you can't really use a, a third party proxy to to fake that. Yeah. So so really, you're saying assume you've got the C-suite now, and what you bring in what might be pretty senior. But is not sufficiently senior to be filling a any perceived gap you might have on your C-suite. Right. Yeah. So, so think about that executive hire in the U.S. being someone you want to uh, be able to execute mm. um, your 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 go to market in the U.S. and not necessarily is going to um, be able to raise money for you. Yeah. 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 And do you even get down to the level of understanding compensation? So, I mean, I, th I think it's well understood in London that some of these very senior tech hires with 20 years experience in even if it's in startups or maybe it's in you know, the large successful tech corporates uh these are expensive hires right these people come with um some expectations that are high even by london standards but then there's the share options i mean are there are you know is there advice you have for the degree to which you can use share options to lure in talent at that stage you know, there's actually, uh, there's a, a venture capital firm, uh, and I'm going to credit Fred Wilson, I'm, I'm from recollection of mm -hmm. it's Fred Wilson, who published, he, so he had a startup who hired a consultant to come up with a share option plan. Okay. And he published it, the plan. Interesting. And it's widely accepted in the U.S., at least in the CEOs that I'm with, is like, oh, yeah. we use the Fred Wilson plan. And so and the reason that's important, and I'll send you a link, so if you, if you yeah, feel please, free to share it. Drop it in Slack. But yeah. the reason that's important, because it kind of becomes a, a, a commonality of if you, as you go start the startup of how that how um, equity is allocated for ESOP. And so if you have a kind of common platform and common approach, um, that helps uh, the company not give too much. Mm. And also kind of helps expectations on the people who are coming in, who maybe have been to startups before. Now, if you have hire someone who's never been to start before, who knows what their expectations are around equity, it could be, it could be a while. Yeah. But if you have a model and say, this is how the industry works, it kind of helps solve a lot of those problems. So interestingly, we had an event about two weeks ago with Leggy. So it's a U, um, Switzerland domiciled cap table platform provider. Um, they're doing really well over here. And in the Q&A at their talk, uh, one of our members essentially said, you know, all of this would be much easier. Uh, and this being uh, what, what, what share option awards were for CFOs and FDs, if there was just a standard way of doing it, mm -hmm. in that you didn't feel like you had to join a company, and one of the battles, even before you started work, was to get 
a certain quantum of shares that essentially there was a sort of a standard industry card and you got the number off the card and that was kind of it that that was his view but right. it sounds like the Fred Wilson piece is very similar. It's very similar. It's super helpful because as a, as a tech CEO or CFO, when you're trying to hire someone who's a senior person or a junior person, like, what, what's fair? What's right? Mm. And if you have a model where it's, it's used um, uh, evenly, I mean, it, it often solves problems later on as people come in, well, gosh, why did a guy get so many more shares than I did, right? Well, here's here's how the model works, right? This is, how, this is the model we use. And it, yeah. it keeps it very consistent and prevents a lot of those um, heartaches and headaches that the CFO might have to face later on as you, um, you know, distribute, distribute additional shares. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, whilst we're talking about CFO headaches and share options, we should put those two uh, together because uh, there's, there's a different valuation mechanism in the US, isn't there? You, mm -hmm. you do these like, like an annual valuation that impacts um, the strike price for the U.S. share employees—is that right? Yeah, so you have to you know, it's now. called a 409A valuation, 409A, right? Yeah. And it is um, something you have to do a lot of times around the time you do a, a, a fundraise. Um, and it's always a little frustrating because, shockingly, the valuation almost comes in almost always identical to the the uh, post money valuation. Okay. So, so shockingly, but right. um, but you have to have a third party do that yeah. uh, for, for a variety of reasons. It's called 409A. Okay. And, uh, there's third parties that, that yeah. Do that. And that ends up being one more party that us CFOs have to coordinate. So, David, uh, we should ha have a talk through some of the examples you've seen in your career, right? I mean, um, all of us have seen some ups and downs in these roller coasters of our lives in VC back tech. But I mean, like, are there any sort of tough periods you've been through or through any horror no, stories? It's all been smooth sailing, no problem. Everything went yeah, straight to plan. Yeah, exactly. Oh, really? Right, so you, nothing you're nothing you one of those. <laughs> No, so you know, if you've been if you've been doing uh, venture back startups for your for twenty years, you're going to have some some rough spots for yeah, sure. Yeah, I bet. Um, I think one that stands out for me um, was a, a venture back deal. So we we signed a, a five million dollar term sheet for an A round. Yeah, um, and it was tranched. And at the time, I didn't think it was a big deal. So they basically funded us two and a half million dollars at close, and then there was another two and a half due at milestones. Okay, completion. Yeah. Um, I was the VP of sales, and so the, the milestones largely fell to me. Um, and I was pleased that we executed on all those. There, typically, all number of customers, you know, uh, signed and revenue and those kind of things. Yeah, we hit all of our milestones. It was unfortunately during a you know a, a pretty sharp downturn in the uh, U.S. economy, and we went to our v our venture backers and said, "Okay, we we've completed all of our milestones. We're ready for our second tranche." And um, they said, well, you know, we're not quite sure about this. And so don't worry, here's 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 cash for this month. Right? And we got your back. Here's your cash for this month instead of the instead of the, the second tranche. The terms are a little different, but you know, we got you. And this played out over and over up to the point where we don't think we have the right CEO, so we're gonna bring in another CEO. We want you to use Hydrogen Struggles to to recruit the CEO. So I know you need 40 grand for hydrogen struggles. Don't worry, here, here it is. We got you 40 grand. Those, those terms, guy, they're, they're a little different. Don't worry, we got you. Mm. And this went on and on and on. They hired a CEO. They fired the CEO six weeks later and they bridged it and bridged it to death. You know, the company, I won't say unfortunately because it made a lot of money for the investors, but the company had a really nice exit. But the founder walked away with less than 1% equity because it essentially got bridged to death. That's crazy. It, that, was, it was horrible. It was that's horrible. really that's really disturbing. And if you play that back, right? So the fundamental weakness is that the, the milestones in the term sheet 
essentially gave that investor the whip hand and that if they wanted to abuse any subjectivity about whether that was achieved or not, they could do that. And it would be very challenging for you guys to raise capital elsewhere. Right. Yeah. And, and so we actually had multiple term sheets and we chose this particular fund because they, we thought they had a better reputation. Mm. And um, you know, in hindsight, gosh, that was a, that was a, a tragic mistake. Again, made, made a lot of money for the investors, um, did, it did not do well for the team. Yeah, because really, with a venture fund, you know, when you're picking the one that you're going to close around with, you want to pick the people that you trust the most and have got great deal terms. And I, I guess the moral of that story is almost that the milestones, like 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 the, the felt the fact that they felt they needed to insert milestones, that optionality not to give you the money under certain criteria, that's almost the kind of the red warning light. Yeah. Something here isn't quite as it should be. Yeah, as a long-time startup operator, words I try to avoid are always endeavor because they come back to bite you. <laughs> but I'm almost certain I will never do another tranche deal again um, yeah. uh, if, I, if I have other options. And I think uh, most of those that would listen to us talk about this uh, will probably be quite suspicious of any term sheet that's got that, that, that type of milestone in it. Right. Yeah, um, incredible story and uh, disturbing that the founder, I mean, I mean, even though the exit was pretty good, uh, the founder walked away with so little, right? It's right. really, uh, it's really he, bought, he, bought, he bought a new bicycle. Wow. Okay. That, that was his. Uh, that was his big, you know, his big use of funds. Let's just hope he loves something. That's <laughs> the only thing we can say there. That that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Very good. And um, earlier on, David, we were just sort of talking as we, um, you know, drove here actually. Uh, and and I was kind of saying, look, look, you know, uh, what you're offering at US Expansion Partners is really interesting. I think it will resonate with a lot of CFOs, a lot of COOs as well, actually, in EU and UK. Uh, and you know, if they're thinking about whether they really need this type of support and just exactly how complicated it can be to launch in that market, you know, are there are there like two, three things that you'd say, hey, look, these are the big things that will be a really big distraction if you want to roll up your sleeves and do it yourself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, you know, which are the ones that, that people really ought to be avoiding? Well, I think the the one that becomes as a CFO you'd want to think about is you know that first executive hire. I think that there is a, a lot of pressure to go out and hire a senior executive to be your, your U.S. lead, and I would say that's a big risk because it's an expensive hire and they may not work out, and so and it could set your U.S. expansion you know efforts back by months. Um, so I think take your time with that, right? So, so like one of the things we provide is we provide interim essentially you know. Your, your U.S. exec interim leadership, yeah. and it gives you time to find the right person and come in, and we can we can help vet those people as they as they get sourced. But don't feel that pressure to make that very first hire a senior U.S. exec because they might not be the best person. They might be a great person after you've after you're ready for growth in the U.S., but mm -hmm. they may not be ideal for that that first hire just uh, to launch. Very interesting. So essentially, with the right support. You can go after somebody who's more like a like mid mid senior type person, uh, and not take the risk that you've got this very expensive individual who then has to do lots of kind of rolling up their sleeves and building rather than being in a true leadership role. Right, and or or the other options you can just hire two or three salespeople, right, who kind of co-report into our organization and the home office again and try and you know, again test your product market yeah. fit assumptions. See how your pricing works. See kind of acceptances before you go out and hire you know someone to be that that leader. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and actually playing it through, by the time that you've got 
your salespeople landing some sales, you've got some local revenue, you've got an office even. Uh, presumably a bit later on, it's actually easier to bring in the big hitter, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. which means you get a better person in the end. Right. And it's less risky. For sure. Hmm. For sure. Makes a lot of sense. And then, yeah, the other thing to think about is, is your, if you're a CFO, you're probably you know pretty smart cookie, right? You have a lot of experience. The question becomes, is it in your benefit to stop and learn all those nitty gritty details it takes to, to launch an operating business in the US or would you be better off having a third party you know oversee that handle that where you can kind of focus on you know the things your investors want which is revenue growth yeah so that's things like the admin around payroll setting up the sales taxes um, local administration, local kind of regulatory all those aspects. things, all those things. Yeah, you know, office selection, you know, software, local accounting, locally, you know, all all those sort of things. You you could do them, you could figure it out, um, or you could you could get some help and then you know worry about more about the the business growth. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And people imagine those things like oh, you know, US payroll. That's like an hour, you know, here or there. But I think a lot of UK domiciled. CFOs don't, don't realize that, for example, US payroll is typically not once a month. Right. It's like it's twice a month. That's right. Once every two weeks. So right. then some months you've got more, more than two, even. Like so, so, you know, it's, um, it's a very different fish. Right. And I think one thing we found is it's, I think it's pretty common that, you know, in the US, salespeople expect commissions monthly. Right. Mm -hmm. So in, in other in other countries, they might get paid annually or quarterly. In the US, expectation is if I close a deal in May, I'm going to get my commission percentage in my June payroll. Um, that, that's a very common, which is turns out is different in some cases. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely fascinating. And then the other bugbear that we talked about earlier, uh, we see so many people, mainly UK CFOs, asking about bookkeeping. Does, does, does anybody know a book, good bookkeeper in the US? Um, no, there are none. It's terrible. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. Um, you know, trying to find someone who just understands the credits and debits is one thing which is difficult because it's typically a, a low a low wage type of job. Most of the CPA firms, certified public accounting firms that do taxes in the U.S., most of them have gotten out of that business. Mm -hmm. It's it's a hassle. It's low margin business. They'd rather you know use their staff or towards tax and audit those kind of things. So there's kind of a gap where where that happens. And you know it's kind of your, your traditional accounting operation. So we're gonna you know receivables, payables, bank reconciliation, payroll, entry, those kind of things. And so our firm is actually doing that now because there's no there's no good solutions in the market. So we have we have really great people to do that and we just handle those, those kind of like nitty-gritty accounting operations yeah. um, for, because there's really not, not, not good solutions. No, that makes sense because I think you don't want to have to be like kind of rolling up your sleeves and doing the kind of intercompany transfer pricing entries every month. You, you want somebody who's kind of boots on the ground, understands US requirements, and can just do those things for you. Right. And also revenue recognition, right? So yeah. a lot of, you might have someone who understands credits and debits, but they might not understand when you have a, you sign a 12 month agreement, you can't necessarily recognize that revenue in, in the 12 months. You have to, I mean, in that, in that period, you have to recognize it over the length of the contract. And you know, so those like, the details are super complicated, yeah. but um, again, most bookkeepers, you know haven't done that before and it can get you in trouble that's true that is true yeah brilliant so look um i i think it's a great concept right you know bringing all these things under one roof and just having a turnkey solution uh, it makes a lot of sense you know to me uh, i was texting for over 15 years i think did i'm going to say four us market launches they all blur blur yeah. into one in the midst of history uh and i did a lot of these things myself uh or with some help from 
US accounting firms, I'll say. And so much more time consuming than I ever imagined. Such a distraction from like the real value add that, that so often is just partnering with the C-suite and being a great partner for the CEO on things like revenue growth and your unit economics and so all those commercial business developments. And that thing where part of your brain is thinking, oh, I've got to do payroll in the US in half an hour's time. Like, <laughs> Bit of a distraction. Um, so it's a really worthy um, space you're operating in. And uh, hey, look, I'll be excited to hear how things go. Maybe in a year or two's time, we have you back on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Really, it's been a pleasure to be here. And for anyone who's interested, we have an ebook on our website. So the URL is usexpansionpartners.com. There's a free ebook that covers what we think of the 13 most common questions about US expansion. It's free. You can download it. And if you are considering U.S. expansion, I would encourage you to read it. You might sound like an expert at your next board meeting where you're discussing those topics. Which was exactly what we talked about earlier, which was I was saying, I did download it earlier. And let me tell you, you could look at this thing for 30 minutes just prior to walking into a board meeting. You would look like an expert on <laughs> right. U.S. market launch. Right. Uh, so definitely download that. Uh, David Rose, uh, thank you very much. It's been yeah. a pleasure. Thanks, Guy. You are listening to CFO Insights brought to you by Startup CFO. If you're a finance professional working in disruptive tech and seek to join our group, just email us at join at startupcfo.tech. This podcast was a part of our CFO Insights series. We release new episodes every two weeks, so don't forget to subscribe to the podcast.